Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting, very newsy episode of the show for you today. If you're a bit down and out and sad about the bear market gripping everything in crypto, we've got another fund coming to the market. That's good news, presumably. We'll find out more about that with the folks on the other side of the mic Jesse Walden and Spencer Noon, of course, from Variant. Jesse, Spencer, thank you for joining the show. Let's unpack this new fund. Thanks for having us. So we have a bunch of news. I guess the, the fund is the headline. You know, you hit it already. We so we raised 450 million, and that's across two new funds, actually, not not just one. There's 150 million core seed fund. And that's actually sized very similar to our last fund, which we were on the show to talk to you about last year. That was a $110 million fund. This one again is 150. And you know the reason we've kept this fund relatively small compared to others who've raised billions is because you know our goal and, and sort of our, our mandate is to be the marquee seed fund in this space. And we think it's important to be disciplined about size so that every investment we make at seed stage, if that's a million dollar, $2 million investment really moves the needle. And the reason for that is that's what allows us to be hands-on with the founders that we back. So $150 million seed fund, size small for a reason. And then in addition, we, we also raised a $300 million opportunity fund. And that is to double down on things that are working in our growing portfolio and, and the broader ecosystem where we're in sort of a privileged position to, to know about the things that are working because we talk to early stage, seed stage entrepreneurs every day. So grateful to have both these funds to, you know, to allow us to do what we do best, which is back entrepreneurs at the earliest stage and then double down on them when, when things start to work. So that, that's the headline. And then real quick, the other bits of news is, and we'll get into this more, is our team has grown massively since we last spoke to, to support in the sort of new funds and, an initiative and and that's up, we're up to 15 people i think when we last spoke we were half that and when we launched the fund we were a team of one so grown a lot and and finally and we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more you know we think it's newsworthy that our thesis is actually playing out that you know networks are turning their users into owners they're going bigger faster as a result and we're starting to see that happen in, in a real meaningful way across the space so to us that's newsworthy and excited to get into it more I definitely want to get into both funds, also what both your opinions are of what's working and what's not working, but I want to share a bit about your backgrounds, right? You come from a mix of a little bit of tech, a little bit of finance. Spencer, right, was at UBS before moving into the tech sector. And Jesse, of course, you cut your teeth and became who you are uh, at A16Z. So there's a lot of different components there to your collective background let's maybe focus on the the seed fund, right? Because there's a lot of people who have ample amounts of capital to deploy. 
and the opportunities maybe don't look as as great as they they did maybe two quarters ago, although the valuations were probably frothy. What are you guys trying to laser in on? I know there was a huge component of sort of like the creator economy, Web3. How have you sharpened it and, and where do you see the opportunity for that seed specific fund? Yeah, so it really kind of trees from our general thesis as a fund. And as Jesse mentioned, you know, we believe that the next generation of the internet is going to be marked by networks that are turning their users into owners. And so ownership enables networks to grow bigger and faster than their centralized counterparts because they're more aligned with their users. And with that, users will retain more of the value that they create. And therefore, we see kind of this possibility for a new equitable and meritocratic internet. And so we at Variant, you know, in the core seed fund, um, we back visionary founders who are aligned with this mission. We are a generalist fund. So we kind of divide the world up into three main categories. DeFi, which is what I lead at Variant. Jesse leads our infrastructure investing. And then Lee Jin, our third co-founder and general partner, leads consumer investing for us. And we can dive more into kind of the sub-themes and, and things that we're really interested about. But at a very high level, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and I would, I would maybe just add, I think a common sort of misconception about Variant is that we are focused sort of more on, on the creator economy or, or you know, consumer, the consumer end of the space. And if you look at our portfolio, that, that's, you know, it's true, we, we've invested a lot there, but we've also invested a lot in other areas of space. So Spencer mentioned he's focused on DeFi, I'm focused on infrastructure, and our existing portfolio has a lot of investments in each of those categories. And so, you know, the, the, the concept of the user-owned web, it, it sort of spans all three of these areas. It's Ethereum, where the immaculate conception was to do with technologist developers crowdfunding the platform that they then, you know, owned a piece of and proceeded to build on top of and, and contributed to its rising growth. And similarly, you know, we'll, we'll talk about other examples, Uniswap and, and DeFi as another example. We'll have to give Lee a kick in the pants for doing a whole podcast <laughs> on the creator economy. That might be, uh, that might be amplifying yeah, well, that misconception to a degree. Well, well yeah. So, I, I mean, Lee, you were asking about her backgrounds and, and you know, she's sort of cut her teeth pioneering a lot of the concepts now known as the creator economy. She, she originally termed it the passion economy in one of her seminal essays and was one of the first sort of consumer investors to jump into Web3 before, you know, it became sort of common sense to do that. And, and then also perhaps common sense to, to leave the space when the market cooled. She's still here and, and was ahead of the curve there. So I think certainly her profile, her reach in, and, and sort of like thought leadership and consumer is part to do with how variants conceive. But the, the reason we all sort of came together, and it, and it is worth noting that we were each sort of solo GPs before we came together as variant. I was, you know, I started the firm solo. Spencer was running a family office fund called DTC Capital, and we had our own fund to tell you the reason that we all came together was we thought that, you know, being a generalist Web3 firm, but one that is comprised of specialists who are extremely deep in their respective areas would be greater than the sum of its parts and that it helps founders who are building in one of these respective areas sort of traverse the landscape. You know, uh, infrastructure investor benefits from Lee's knowledge and consumer because presumably, you know, infrastructure founders want to get the best consumer applications building on top of their infrastructure. And similarly, you know, consumer teams, they need to know about the cutting edge of, of the technology in this space and how they can support mass adoption in their applications. So sort of dividing the world into these three broad buckets is not to say we're, we're each sort of siloed, but rather that, you know, we not siloed, but just the, the new the new frontier of Web3 consumers, one portion, the expansion of uh, blockchain computing, that's another bucket. And then, of course, you have financial empowerment through DeFi as the top category here at least it's listed as number one in the delineation and then there's the fourth bucket which is user experiences defined by new forms of ownership but i feel like th that and consumer are kind of intertwined to an extent but if you could you know sort of just indulge me for a question or two about this consumer element because i think when we think about like these web3 consumer-based applications the question I've been asking myself, and I've used a number of them, I've used, you know, whether it's from the NFT market to the X to earn market, right? Some of these apps, they're, you know, they're, they're easy to use. They're not as um, obfuscated by complexities as 
decentralized options platforms or whatever have you. But the the one question that I think hangs over the space right now, and I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me that they're easy to use, is do they work when token prices don't go up? Do people still want to use them when you have a collapse in the value of this mechanism that's supposed to share ownership? I think it's a fair point that, and, and maybe, you know, the short answer to your question is many of these applications don't work when the price isn't going up into the right or the, you know, the price is going down. You know, that's not to say that nothing is working or, or nothing can work. Rather, I think the takeaway should be that, you know, we haven't figured out the best practices in how to design tokens to build sustainable networks that grow bigger, faster, rather the, the designs that we've seen kind of as flash in the pan and, and fizzle when the market is turning the other way are just sort of naive mechanisms that sort of haven't satisfied user demand. And so this gets to one of our, the themes that you touched on, which is that, you know, ownership is this new design space that unlocks new user experiences. And, and I think, you know, this is a theme that kind of spans consumers, it spans infrastructure and DeFi. The core idea is that, you know, one way to think about tokens is, is to think of them as sort of products, right? Products have to solve a, a problem for the user. They have to, you know, do a job. And today, you know, many of the, the tokens that we've seen, they just don't do that unless the price is going up. And so one of the things that we're looking for is products that really zero in on the job that the token does for the user. Does the token, for example, give the user a sense of control over the network? Right? Is that something that the user actually wants? And is the token being distributed to the users who want to exercise that control through governance? Right? That's, that's sort of the product design lens of token design. And that is something that could be applied to infrastructure, could be applied to DeFi or consumer applications. But you know, ownership as control through governance is a property that tokens offer. And, and it's something that we encourage founders to, to zero in on and unbundle from to the, today what is often sort of a, a bundle of you know, things that, that are packed into a token. One, one other quick example is networks whose users experience ownership as belonging in a community, right? Belonging is sort of a fundamental human need. And fundamental human needs don't change all that much, you know, millennia over millennia. Can founders design tokens that solve for these core needs that are you know, consistent in every wave of the web? And I think if founders sort of try to apply this product design lens to token design, we'll start to see products and services that stick, where again, the token is a function in building the network to be more sustainable long run. That's one of the things we're looking for. That's just really well said. Yeah, ju just to build on that point a little bit more, you know, I, I think that by us being a generalist fund and in having kind of expertise in DeFi and infrastructure, Frank, like you're, you're totally right that on the consumer side of things, the token economics and just like tokenomics of these new products, it's it doesn't feel sustainable long term, at least the current state right now. And one of the things that we try to do as a fund is kind of roll up our sleeves and work really closely with entrepreneurs. I think we can do that because, like Jesse said, our, our fund is sized in a way where we can make concentrated bets. And so we're really looking forward to kind of applying those best practices from these other categories to consumer. And hopefully finding a way to um, yeah, make them more sustainable. It's just a question that's top of mind. A lot of skeptics in the space are coming out. So I want to kind of, in a way, I, I'm almost keen to have you to present a defense of Web3 to an extent. Because I think a lot of people have become disenfranchised. There was a great podcast a few days ago that went out from Outlots with a well-known venture investor, Jason Calacanis, who kind of poured a bunch of cold water on the token VC world, adding that there isn't this focus on product. And that's why I appreciate Jesse's appreciation of the product. Because if you really think about it, if we if we think about the the trope or the trite example of building, you know, Web3 Uber with a token. Will people really care, unless the token's really mooning, will they really care about this Web3 Uber alternative if the product is not delightful? But I think 
Jesse, the point that you made, which was super interesting is if you're very clear as a startup that these are the controls you're going to have vis-a-vis a token, then that's maybe a game changer. We're going to let you decide how peak hours and off-peak hours are determined. We're going to let you decide you know, what fares might be when it rains. I don't know. These are just random like examples, but I think that's a component people probably aren't talking enough about. Yeah, for sure. And and I think, you know, it's important to note that the desire to decide upon what the surge pricing should be in, in this hypothetical application, that's not for everyone, right? Like some people just want to use the service, right? And, and so I think, a, you know, a common misconception is that tokens are going to be literally for, for every single user or that every single user is going to have sort of a monolithic or similar experience as an owner. And what we're trying to sort of get at with, with this theme about ownership unlocking new user experiences is that it's not a monolith. And, and founders, one of the things founders should, should be doing, just as you would with a traditional startup, understanding the user persona. What are the user's needs and how can you leverage ownership as a tool to meet them? So if there is a subset of power users, for example, who want to control the product, how do you make sure that you know they get the right token and that the token sort of gives them the authority that they crave, right? If other users just want a sense of belonging, they want to be part of the community, or maybe they just want financial alignment with the product and service that they use every day, right? They want to see the number go up or they're willing to take a bet. They just want to invest. These are different user needs to solve for. And that's sort of the, the lens that we think is important founders apply. And, and one way of talking about this is sort of the unbundling of ownership into these bespoke experiences that's that solve for different user needs. But then you, you were also sort of getting at the fact that there's a lot of skeptics who just don't think that ownership is important, right? And I think we, we've got a number of defenses of, of Web3 that, that counter that narrative. I'll lead off with one, and I know Spencer's got a number of others, um, but I think you know a, a great example is what's happening in the NFT world. So sure, the total volume in dollar terms is down, Right, because prices of individual NFTs are, are down. But what's not down is the number of NFTs that are being minted every day. If you look at the on-chain data, number of NFTs minted is still up and to the right, still growing. So, so what does that mean? Um, what can we take away from that? I, my view is it's indicative that NFTs as an asset class are here to stay. Um, it's a new business model for creators, which is the incentive to mint them. And I think it's a new model for patrons of those creators too, who, who want to support creative work that they see in the world and, and you know, buy NFTs, but also have the potential to profit from their, their patronage by you know, backing these creators. So that's continuing in spite of the market downturn. And that's just one of the many fundamental indicators that being able to own a piece of the internet is a model, new business model that's here to stay in spite of the, you know, the narrative that, that volumes and prices are down. Spencer, did you check the chain? <laughs> I did actually. Thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for asking me and teaming up for this, Frank. Um, so yeah, I think there was some great research recently by Nansen, and, and they kind of looked at the different wallets that are you know interacting with Ethereum for the first time. So these are new wallets, and more than ten thousand new wallets each day are buying their first NFT on Ethereum. And I think that's like pretty amazing, right? When you when you think about the prices going down, you still have this fundamental activity that shows people care that there is demand. And then uh, another lens to look you know, through this at is, I think it's something like five times as many users, these new users are using NFTs and kind of doing NFT transactions as their first transaction on Ethereum than interacting with the DEX. And so this is kind of where the moment you know, Web3 finds itself in. We're going mainstream, we're on the brink, I would say. And this kind of creator consumer categories is probably how we're going to do it. One other thing just to throw in, because again, we, you know, we touched on the misconception variance of like creator firm and here we are talking about NFTs again. So the, the other thing that I would say, I would argue in defense of Web3 that, that is working is, is just the tech itself. The infrastructure is improving by leaps and bounds. Certainly, you know, if you compare where we are now versus two years ago, it, it's a totally different landscape. The infrastructure is ready to support this sort of mainstream adoption that Spencer just alluded to. We we just saw Polygon announce, you know, they're going to be supporting Instagram's NFTs. They announced a partnership with Reddit. So there is sort of this frontier of, of new infrastructure that is ready for mainstream adoption. And so, you know, whenever I see headlines that about hacks and, you know, the technology being expensive, of course that's it's true and, and it's important to highlight that stuff. 
But it's also the case that in the history of technology, technology doesn't get worse and disappear. It gets better and more pervasive. And, and that's happening at an exponential rate in Web3 because this is all software. It's all open source. And there's just tons of talent jumping in and putting their minds to solving these really hard problems. So the tech is working. And, and again, I think that means it's, it's only going to be more pervasive. Aren't there just trade-offs, though, at the end of the day, especially when we think about the DeFi component? You know, you have a more censorship-resistant means of engaging in financial services. There's less barriers to entry. You can spring up new markets, but, you know, you can't call up the CEO of Insert Dex here and have them get your funds back. Like, that's just the fundamental trade-off. Yeah, I, I think that's that's totally fair. And what we're seeing with DeFi is it is being used as this tool for financial empowerment, but it's not, at least today, this carbon copy of the traditional financial system. And so, you know, I think looking at a category like stablecoins is is worth it. There are over $150 billion in stablecoins outstanding on chain. And the adjusted transaction volume of them is, you know, north of $500 billion monthly. And the reason is because it's the easiest way to transfer money internationally in other places. It's just, you know, as easy as sending an email, you can send stable coins. And I think that's this kind of real sign of product market fit. But when you kind of zoom out and think about like, what is DeFi actually useful for? One example that I like to talk about is Braeburn Capital which you may have heard of before, it's Apple's internal hedge fund. And Braeburn Capital manages more than $250 billion in assets. It's multi-strategy. It does credit, financing, a whole kind of list of things that would honestly rival any of the top credit funds in the world. The Wall Street Journal, they once called Apple a hedge fund that makes smartphones in, in, in the papers. And so when, when, you, when you zoom out and you think about DeFi being used for financial empowerment, this doesn't just mean people. It can also mean businesses. So imagine the long tail of you know, anyone who has a DAO who can plug into composable, permissionless, transparent, decentralized financial infrastructure and now have their treasury managed similar to a braver in capital. Like, this is the type of future that I think when the rails are finally set, we're going to see these consequences of. It's still very, very early, but we're backing founders at the earliest stages who are building towards that future. And then one, one thing to jump in, Spencer, you were saying the other day, in this recent market downturn, we saw a lot of blowups in, in um, you know, institutional finance in the crypto space. And I didn't use the word DeFi there because many of the blowups we've seen were, were in fact not DeFi, but you know the more traditional sort of opaque companies that were engaged in financial services related to crypto. And, and what we did actually see is in DeFi itself, you know, true DeFi protocols were the only protocols that got paid back by some of these institutions that blew up. And so, yes, it's, it's true that you can't call the CEO of a DeFi protocol because they don't control the thing and, and there is no CEO. But it's also the case that the transparency and sort of enforcement of these smart contracts can actually have better outcomes than the alternative, which is op opacity and, and sort of trust in, in the wrong parties. Yeah, that's a phenomenal point. I had a gentleman reach out to me on Twitter who said, to echo the meme of uh, not naming names, he, he did ask me not to name names, but he walked me through the entire process of getting a loan from insert CFI uh, lending operation here. And it was laughably easy. And to your point, Jesse, if I'm on the other side of that, or if I'm another counterparty, I can't see the full book in the same way that I can see everything that's happening in DeFi. And that is insanely powerful. And the power of DeFi was on full display in the aftermath of this blow up where those smart contracts were getting paid off first. Not to digress too much, but there are some weird bankruptcy questions that, that kind of are unresolved where all counterparties should be treated equal, but DeFi can't be. So what happens there? Because there is no CEO to yell at. So that'll be interesting. But the counterpoint to that is there is still this technical risk. There's no counterparty risk in DeFi, which is pretty amazing, but there is this technical risk. 
Are you looking at seeding, investing in firms that are solving this technical risk problem? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. It's in our, you know, in our announcement. Yeah, we're looking for tooling for developers and for end users that makes crypto safer to, to, to use. So, you know, our, our view is today there are technical landmines all over crypto. There's lots of sort of traps for, for users to fall into because the user experience is still rough around the edges. But all this is going to get smoothed out and it's going to get smoothed out by founders building startups to invest in improving the security of you know, the underlying tech itself and the end user experience. So, so certainly one of the things we're excited about. Spencer, what, what are your thoughts on that segment? Like, What type of tooling are you really interested in paying a lot of attention to? Yeah. Um, well, so I might take a, a slightly different vantage with this. Um, I think smart contract security in the DeFi space has been um, you know, of, of the utmost importance, right? They're, these are kind of massive honeypots, these smart contracts. And you know, at, at Variant, one of the themes that we've been investing in is kind of optimizers or protocols that use and leverage composability with the existing DeFi primitives out there to build kind of better user experiences. And so we just recently announced an investment in Morpho. Morpho is a lending optimizer. So basically what happens is if you're a user that wants to take out a loan or do some lending, you go directly to the Morpho website. And what it does is it matches you with another user who wants to take the other side of that trade and can give you the best rate in the market. It's looking at Compound and Aave and other decentralized lending markets as well. And if it's unable to find a match, it routes you automatically to Compound or Aave. And so what you can see here is if you use Morpho, you are always getting the best rate in terms of your loan. And I think the reason why Morpho can be built, you know, it's July 2022, is principally because of the smart contract security of these major dominant DeFi protocols that have been battle tested. They've worked in times of extreme volatility. They've been around for quite some time, multiple years, which is a lot in, in crypto. There's some Lindy there. And um, I think there's really kind of reasonable assurances that they've ossified. They're, they're basically going to stay the same and, and continue to be secure. So yeah, it's it's um it's a theme we're we're kind of battling from all angles. Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. Jesse, what other themes are top of mind? Another theme I, I sort of touched on in, in bits and pieces is, is what we call the layer cake of blockchain computing. And this is a sort of an infrastructure theme. And it's inspired by the way the sort of early internet played out, um, which again, it was a layer cake of, of protocols, HTTP for, for moving packets. Then we got IMAP and SSL for email and SSL for privacy. And you know the, the key idea there is that as each of these layers in the cake emerged, the adjacent possible of what developers could build expanded, and we got this very rich, you know, ecosystem of, of startups building new applications. And the same exact thing is playing out in crypto, where you know we have, you know, smart contracts for platforms for computing. We have blockchains now focused exclusively on storage, and others on privacy. And so this layer cake is starting to, you know, really stack up, and the adjacent possible of, of what 
developers will build is, is expanding accordingly. And so our view is like the result of all these new layers in the layer cake, it's not zero-sum competition, but, you know, this smart contract platform versus that one. Rather, it's, it's positive-sum, and we just expect there's going to be more and more computation happening in all this new block space that's being created. So that's a theme that, that we're excited about. We invest in each layer in, in the cake and, and then in the developer tooling that sits on top of, of each of these layers that makes it accessible for the next cohort of developers to jump in and, and build on top of it. Yeah. Spencer? We spend a lot of time on um, NFTs just as this as a generalist fund, and, and clearly that's where the, the space is going. I think that protocols that are addressing the financialization of NFTs are of particular interest and and basically their enhanced productivity because of it. And so yeah, I would say, you know, right now we're we're pretty much in V0 of NFTs. You, you look at Bored Apes or CryptoPunks and what can you do with it? Uh, you can you can buy or sell, you can put it as your Twitter profile picture, you can maybe get access to a party, but but that's pretty much it, right? But developers are building financial primitives that are going to service these NFTs in ways that like add a, a whole new layer of, of utility. And so you could imagine lending your NFT or you know staking your board ape and drawing USD and so that you can like you know go out and, and purchase something and, and use that as, as collateral. Um, a whole host of other of other things. And I think you know if you squint. And you kind of realize you can actually swap out that board ape. Someday that'll be a mortgage or that'll be a house or that'll be some other type of financial asset. You know, we, we believe that all of the world's assets are coming on chain. Many of them will be reflected as NFTs. And these rails that are, you know, being bootstrapped by speculation today, they're going to be the same rails that are kind of building this fundamental landscape for, for everything in the future. Yeah. Mortgage on chain, anything on chain. I mean, mortgage can't be made worse is the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Strong, strong plus on. Since Lee's not here, I mean, you know, she, there, there's a bunch of consumer themes that, that we could talk about too, and she would do a much better job. But, but in short, you know, I, I think we've, we've made a number of investments in, in what we call Web3 Social, and that continues to be a theme that we're excited about. One way of looking at this is, we sort of think about blockchains themselves as social networks comprised of economic links as opposed to sort of social links. And you could, you could say they're socioeconomic networks, right? Like the, the social network is the economic links between people on chain. And so one example of an investment that we, we made um, following that theme is, um, is context where you can sort of view a, fee, a live feed of what's happening on chain. It's, it's not a feed of, you know, what your friend's ate for lunch, rather it's a feed of like what NFT your friend bought while they were having lunch, um, you know, at ETCC or something like that. So you can see, you know, the actions people are taking with real money, with real skin in the game. And we think that's just a fundamentally new kind of social network because it's not what you say you did or what you're, you're pretending to, to do. It's, it's what you actually did on chain with, with real money behind it. So that's one theme. And another that we're excited about is, is verticalized marketplaces. So we've made a number of investments there in, you know, music, NFT marketplaces like sound and catalog in digital fashion and in, in drop. And, and so we further to the point Spencer was making, there's just going to continue to be every asset coming on chain and, and the need for more verticalized marketplaces to really deliver, you know, top notch experiences for those specific asset classes is only going to increase. And then finally, it's like one other theme that, that we're really excited about is, and, and we've seen some of this happen um, over the last year, is capital formation on chain leading to impact off chain in the physical world and, and in you know, new on chain virtual world. So an, a great example is Constitution DAO, lots of capital pooled together on chain to go and buy a copy of the Constitution. And you can imagine that same sort of idea applied to other social causes like you know, charitable giving or you know, climate, you know, I think we'll start to see mass amounts of money aggregated on chain and deployed in service of things in the real world. I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see, you know, the equivalent of super PACs form and start to influence politics, not just on a national scale, but, but a global one because crypto is global. And then similarly, I think, you know, we'll start to see the same thing play out in, in virtual worlds, you know, things like on cyber where, you know, people are spending more and more time in these 3D virtual spaces, building out sort of virtual societies. So that's another theme we're excited about, capital formation for 
impact in, in the real world, whether that's virtual or physical space. I have to say, uh, you have one portfolio company called Barada. Mm-hmm. It's my one of my favorite <laughs> dishes. <laughs> I knew you were going to say you, that. Are you are you are you investing based off of my palate? Because that's that's a pretty that's a pretty smart move. I'm trying to think of what other food um, <laughs> food portfolio companies we have. You know, there was this whole thing in DeFi summer where every project had you know every kind of project. Food yeah, we were all just really um, hungry for gains. <laughs> but no, I, I think I think it maybe um, unless I'm blanking, I think Barada is our only food investment. <laughs> um, no, seriously, what, what, yeah, just what Barada does real quick is it's actually the inverse of what I was just saying. It's, it's focusing on bringing off-chain data on-chain to enable new use cases. So, for example, like a mortgage, you need to get some real-world credit checks. Where does that data come from? Barada sort of solving that that problem. That's interesting. Is it? I mean, like the whole topic of an on-chain credit score is top of mind for a lot of people. Like, how can you kind of have some sort of on-chain immutable identity that kind of unlocks things for you? Yeah, yeah. So, one thing I'm I'm particularly excited about in this arena is is sort of the convergence of zero knowledge cryptography and the the need for you know, being able to prove things about yourself on chain without revealing everything to everyone because you know, all data on chain is public, but you don't necessarily want your credit score to be public for, for the world to see. So I think where we're going to get to and, and the, you know, the technology has really improved to enable it is the ability to just use a zero knowledge proof, meaning a proof that nobody else can, can sort of see the contents of to prove I am in fact this person mm-hmm. or I did XYZ on chain yeah. previously. I voted in this governance vote without revealing the address that you actually voted from, right? And, and that address's entire history. So, you know, that, that's, I think, um, here and now, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if in, in the coming year, we start to see some of the major wallets like Phantom, which is a portfolio company, MetaMask and others, start to support zero-knowledge proofs as just a key primitive that becomes like a, a, a critical piece of how you traverse Web3. So, in, you know, you, you will be able to identify yourself I am, you know, Jesse, I'm Spencer, I'm Frank, um, without using the same address that everyone has seen in the past, right? So, so you'll be able to unbundle your history from who you actually are. And I, I think that's going to open up a whole new class of applications. Really fascinating. Where do you fall here, Spencer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this really just goes back to the fact that the infrastructure is ready. It's getting better by the day. And we're seeing new entrepreneurs who are, who are building classes of applications that like couldn't have otherwise existed only you know a year ago. One you know portfolio company in the zero knowledge space that I'm particularly excited about is Aztec. Mm-hmm. It's a layer two roll up on Ethereum, and what Aztec is able to do is basically you know it's a destination for users' funds. So you take your you know ETH or your tokens that are on layer one, you send them to the Aztec roll up. And now that becomes your hub for interacting with DeFi or with other applications in Web3. And so let's say now I want to use Compound. Well, my funds go from the roll-up to Compound. And it also does that along with all the other funds, the user funds in the roll-up. And so no one is able to know except for you, you know, which funds are yours. And so it's this level of anonymity that I think is really, really interesting and and frankly, solves a, a huge need for people who are constantly doxing themselves on chain. Yeah, all the people that um, Zach XBT is going after. This is anti Zach XBT technology to an extent. <laughs> but we kind of don't we want people to dox themselves on chain? Like, isn't you know? <laughs> I think you're right. It's the way that I've always thought about it is it's selective doxing in, in a lot of ways. And this is one of the, the, the principles, I think, of Web3 Social, which is one of the consumer categories that we're investing at here at Variant. When you know someone makes a transaction on-chain, you can now create this amazing social graph of all the interactions that happen because of it. And you can now start to own your social graph and take it from Twitter or you know some other place on the web. And I think what we're going to see using zero knowledge, using other types of tools, there's going to be a gradient of, you know, what's happening on chain, what's forever and permanent, 
And then what are things that maybe maybe are not? And so, you know, we're, we're looking to fund founders who are kind of combining both of them. Yeah, and I would just add, I, I mean, I think that's very much the sort of the state of the world that we live in today is one where, you know, we selectively choose to make a lot of information about our lives public via social media. But, you know, we have, I would say, at least some discretion over over what information does become public. And there are other areas of our life where we, you know, we try to maintain privacy as much as possible. And, and frankly, we don't have the best tools for the job. And, and what we're going to get to in crypto is, I think, something kind of similar, but with better tools. So, you know, by default, on you know everything that goes on you know base layer chains is, is public people know that but we'll have tools to selectively make things private where we want them to be and, and yet still prove the things that are necessary to prove that you know for example i am who i say i am and, and so that mm. blend is is optimal in, in my eyes i think we'll get there in in, in relatively short order mm. it's interesting so much to unpack. I mean, I'd almost be remiss, Jesse, if we didn't talk about like your background as, you know, working in the artist world. And it's kind of like what really informs a lot of what, what you've done at Variant. But I want to get to the the more pedantic question of raising in this market. Where do you get the funds? Are people not afraid of crypto at this point? Did you raise before the the major blow up or, or have we just been saving this announcement to, to give people hope from completely uh, abandoning it? <laughs> well, first off, it's, it's important to note one of the key tenets of Varian is we try to live our own thesis. And we do that by trying to make our users owners of, of the fund itself. And, and so what that means in practice is many of the founders that we back are also LPs in the fund. And we've done that from inception because again, we you know we're a smaller firm relative to the to the big dogs out there, and so we have to take a network driven approach to scaling our value. How do we take a network driven approach and build a network that grows bigger faster? We just look to our, our thesis, and so making our users the founders that we back owners is is one of the you know ways that that we do that, and and it's also part of the fundraising story. The the rest of the capital that we raise comes from institutions who. Benefit causes we admire, like education and sort of other social causes. And we are in the fortunate position of having institutional backers and being able to choose where that capital comes from because there was you know, a lot of interest. And so we didn't have to really go out there and hit the pavement too hard in this cycle. And what's notable about these institutions is, like us, they are long-term committed to this space. So they're not thinking about what the market might do tomorrow or, or next year, but rather taking a you know ten year plus time horizon, and you know it's important to note because this is not the case of all the funds and capital in the space. You know, Variant is a long term venture fund. It's it's ten years, I think up to up to twelve years time horizon um, at our discretion. So our capital base is, is what we like to call permanent capital. Like they are not subject to the to the whims of the market. And you know, not to toot our own horn, but I think at, at this point we're we're still a relatively new firm, but we are established. We have a track record. We've backed some of the leading projects in the space, like Uniswap and Phantom and, and others. And so, yes, it's a difficult fundraising environment, generally speaking, in this market. But there is institutional capital out there that's committed, like we are, to, to the long term view and thesis and mission. And so we were able to to get it done in spite of that. Can you tell that institutional capital about the block research, please, and the <laughs> services we have to offer? Now? I'm sure they definitely listen to this podcast, and that's why we're on it. I'm telling you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure they'll really enjoy this one. I mean, it's been this has been a show that we should have done six months ago. I'm thrilled that you guys are both on. I guess the one aspect that we haven't talked necessarily about. You know, the the layer one wars were a big topic of discussion throughout 2021 and that poured over into 2022. Everyone wants to be the crypto AWS. Literally everyone, even I maybe want to be the crypto AWS. And of course, our friends at Alchemy, they raised some sort of, I think, $10 billion round. What are you thinking of in terms of like that sort of backbone of Web3 infrastructure computing? Where are the opportunities there? Yeah, so, and you know, come back to this layer cake analogy I used earlier. A lot of folks sort of view the the competition among various smart contract platforms as, as zero sum, and you know, like there's this 
you know, Ethereum versus Solana is one of the, you know, mega debates and, and, and hot button issues in the space. We just don't look at it that way. We sort of see it again as this, this complementary layer cake where, you know, much, much like economies in, in, in the physical world, these are different geographic regions or different economic zones that are specialized in their output. Solana has a lot of NFT usage and, and meanwhile, Ethereum continues to dominate in DeFi, right? So our view is that what, what's sort of happening if you zoom out is that block space is becoming you know, widely available. It used to be in, in very limited supply. There was only Ethereum, right, in, in their early days. And now there's, there's block space of all different shapes and sizes. There's highly secure, highly decentralized Ethereum, which is still you know, critical for, for many applications and which is a great backbone for new layer twos that are, again, creating more block space that's cheaper and you know, of different varieties, some that's private, some that's you know, uniquely suited to NFTs like Mutable X. And so again, what's happening is there's this, this, this explosion in block space. And we think there's also on the other side going to be an explosion of demand for that block space. In 10 years, we'll look back and say the biggest market in the world that didn't exist roughly 10 years ago is the market for block space. So I would say what we're looking for are new block spaces, whether layer one, layer two, even layer three, that are purpose-built for specific kinds of applications, right? So that could mean application-specific tooling for, for developers to launch their own blockchains, or it could mean you know, block space that is uniquely well-suited to private applications, right? But that's sort of what we see happening is this layer cake of block space emerging and it being positive sum, complementary, expanding the adjacent possible for, for what developers can build. Mm. Are you a blockchains or cities guy? Oh, yeah. I think one of the first podcasts I ever did was exactly that title, Blockchains and Cities. It was an A6NZ podcast, 2018. And yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's inspired by Jane Jacobs. If you haven't read Jane Jacobs, I highly recommend it. She talks about the development of cities and economies and how it's kind of, ra- you know, random and each city specializes and has its own sort of vibe and culture and economic output. And, and yeah, cities aren't in direct competition with each other necessarily. I mean, sure, people move from city to city for their career or for the economy. But in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, America has a bunch of great cities that are great for different reasons. And that, that's positive sum for the American economy. So, yes, I think that's a, that's a very apt analogy for what we're talking about with block space. Yeah. Cheeses are also cities. You got mozzarella, you got burrata. You got, they're all good in their own way. Brie, of course. Yeah, cheeses are definitely positive zone. <laughs> Great for the economy as well. What would we do without them? Spencer, what are you looking for in founders? Like, where are the good founders and how do you woo them aside from going on podcasts and pontificating? Yeah. So I, I think that when you're an early stage fund like ours and, and we're backing founders when they have sometimes when they have no code written, they might not even have a deck. They could just be world class. These are people who are highly, highly technical, usually in something like economics or distributed systems or math or, you know, maybe, you know, multiple of, of the above and have demonstrated this ability to ship both a product and a protocol. I think the generation of Web3 founders, they have to build for the mainstream. And so we're looking to find visionaries who want to pull some version of the future forward that they've set out to build. And a lot of the times, it has to do with user ownership. It has to do with maybe toppling some type of centralized giant that exists today and bootstrapping their own networks with things like like speculation and just like more sharing. So yeah, that's, that's how I'd answer it. I would say I just add only one thing to what to what Spencer said, which is that you know we, one thing that we look for is founders doing their life's work. So again, we're like a, we're a mission driven firm. The mission we're after is to build a more equitable internet, and we think that we can do that and simultaneously deliver great investment returns because these networks grow bigger faster through user ownership. And we we want to back founders who are aligned with that long term view of the space. So there's I would I would say there's lots of founders and there's lots of firms out there who, you know, are maybe structured and sort of institutionally structured for short-term 
gains. We are not that firm and we don't want to back founders who are thinking about, you know, launching a token as quickly as possible and having it flash up and then sort of moving on. We, we want to work with founders who want to do this for a long time, who want to realize the promise of, of our thesis, which is the most valuable networks in the world because users are owners and the social outcomes that, that can be affected because of that. Gentlemen, I'd like to thank you first and foremost for joining us today on the show. Is there anything that we haven't touched or anything that our audience should know about this announcement, about what you guys are working at, at the firm and where can they learn more about you? I think we pretty well covered it all. I mean, you know, our, our website is a great place to learn more about all the educational content we put out across all of the different channels. And we didn't mention, you know, Spencer's got a great newsletter, our network, go subscribe. You will find out, you know, what's really going on on these networks based on on-chain data. Lee's, you know, prolific writer as well. So go on the website. Whoever put together this blog draft deserves a raise, in my opinion. I think it was <laughs> phenomenally put together. So we'll uh, just leave it at that. Thank you. Spencer's like, I wrote it. Where's my raise? <laughs> uh, what about on the Twitters and on all that? Where can we find you? At Variant Fund. And then Spencer, What yours is pretty easy, I think, right? Everybody knows Spencer's. Yeah. Pretty much in the clock on Twitter, but we've got we've got the whole team on on Twitter, and we're you know we, we want to be approachable. So if you're a founder or a builder or anyone who's a stakeholder in this space, don't hesitate like to reach out. Our DMs are open, our inboxes are open. We yep. want to build with the community alongside everyone. I also um, want to close with giving a shout out to a young man. I won't say the firm he works at because I don't want him to get him in trouble, but he came up to me when I was on my way back from the Hamptons and he said he was a big fan of the show. And um, I just want to thank him and everyone else who listens. And ladies and gentlemen, again, we've been joined by Spencer and Jesse of Variant. Hopefully you tune in for our next guest or two guests. Have an amazing day.